Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. My God, he's done it so many times on every single angle on the table that you can think of. You know, even he started as a butcher, you know, like in his uncle's supermarket. But, you know, we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, with this conversation. So, uh, again, you know, building, scaling, financing, you know, and also exiting because he also has, you know, those success under his belt. So without further ado. Michael Bronfein, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So, Michael, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Baltimore, Maryland? Actually, it was great. I grew up in a very uh, kind of middle, middle class neighborhood across the street from my elementary school and my junior high school. And there were lots of kids. We played lots of sports. And at an early age, I decided that uh, one of the things that I really liked was independence. So, I literally started working when I was 10 years old, cutting lawns, and then at 12, went to work for my uncle in his supermarket, as you mentioned, um, and never looked back. And, uh, you know, I find creating businesses and with competitive advantage and great people just a lot of fun. And so it's really kind of both my vocation and my avocation. And where's that drive, that drive for independence, that drive for building businesses? Where's that coming from? Unquestionably, my mother. You know, she used to tell all three of uh three of us that uh, you can accomplish anything you want as long as you're committed to it. And, uh, and so I believed her when she told me that. And in fact, by the time I was five years old, she was a little frustrated with me because she would say, why don't you ever listen to me? You only do what you want to do. I said, mom, because that's what you told me to do. <laughs> and so, so it started around five and it's just gotten worse since. Now, now in this case, you know, like for you, I mean, accounting, you know, sounds like something that uh, you picked up, you know, even though you never dedicated yourself as, a, as an accountant. Why? Why accounting out of all things? Well, I, I think accounting is, is kind of the basis for understanding the flow of funds and the, and the activities in business. And uh, it's almost like the plumbing and the electrical infrastructure in a building. Right. And so if you can understand how everything works really well, you can make more informed decisions quicker. Uh, one of the things that I was fortunate to be trained on very early in my business career was finance, uh, and not just not just uh, accounting. In your case, Michael, you know something really interesting that I think that really shaped up, you know, your 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 career, you know, and and your way of thinking about business too is being able to work with your uncle. You know, there you literally 
you know, helped out on every direction in the supermarkets, you know, that he had. So, so how was that for you? It was extraordinary. I had both an uncle and a cousin who was like an older brother and they were both fabulous merchants. And there's a difference between just being a business person and being a merchant. They, they thought about the customer and everything they did. And they thought about how you build your business, maintain your business and grow your business through the eyes of the customer. And that's really was the thing that they, they gave me that was a real gift because everything I do is focused on how do we delight the customer in a way that's more uh, advantageous in, than our competitor, whether it's the quality of our product, the quality of our service, uh, just just the way we assure that people know we care about how they do and what they do. Uh, and, and it makes a re real difference. Uh, I think too often today, people get internally focused. And in my organization, there's only one thing that matters, delighting the customer, period. I mean, in, in your case, I mean, you even became the butcher, you know, there. I mean, it's incredible. Now, I guess, you know, you were talking about this, you know, like being able to interface a lot with people and really help you understand, you know, what really matters when you're building a business. I guess about people, what did you learn throughout that experience? Well, I learned that, first of all, if you ask them what they want, authentically, they'll tell you. And, uh, and if you give them what they want, they will beat a path to your door. Uh, and they and they won't be easily pried away by competitors. Um, and so mutual respect, understanding, kindness and and really uh, empathetic listening are really important. And I spend a lot of my time talking to customers because they tell me kind of what's on their mind and, and what they need in order to be successful with their customers. Uh, or it could be directly with patients or or consumers of our products that we also talk to. and little nuances uh, come out all the time. And when those nuances come to the fore and we ask about them or I ask about them, it always provides a lot of clarity and it becomes very clear what people want, what they don't want, what they'll pay for, what they won't pay for. And when you can have that kind of data and input, particularly in a real-time way, it's a very powerful tool. And as I, as I you know, like to tell my team, let's just ask the customers what they want and give it to them. They'll be happy. And and I think our number one market position in Maryland for five and a half straight years is the best evidence of that. It really doesn't matter what I think. It matters what they think. And and they vote with their feet in their pocketbook every day and every week. And we've been fortunate to be the biggest recipient of that in the state now for, as I said, five and a half years going into adult use. I think that's going to even accelerate. That's incredible. Now, now one thing here that uh, that I found interesting is that for you, you know, after the supermarket experience, you went at it, you know, and you went into banking. Mm -hmm. But before really launching your first company, I mean, you had that independence in you since, like you were saying, 12 years old. Mm -hmm. What do you think took you so long, you know, for, for you to go through this experience, then banking, and then to say, hey, you know what, now is my time to start my own business? I remember very clearly, I was about 23 years old working for my uncle full-time. Now I was out of college and um, finished the CPA and um, and I was observing different uh, executives I would meet that he would do business with or I would observe him. And I decided that I wanted to be a CEO, that I thought someone who was able to drive the strategy, the vision, the operational results and uh, overall, you know, influence the company was an exciting place to be because, you know, if you think about it, you're in control, you're independent. Right. So it kind of fed into my desire to want to follow my own. Uh, trail in my own light. And um, and so I then really focused on 
what am I going to need to do to really get good at this and, and build skills? And one of the reasons that I decided to become a banker was because I thought that would be a very good way to learn about a lot about businesses and a lot of businesses. Because when you extend credit to someone, first of all, you need to understand the drivers of their success or the drivers of their failure. You need to understand how to structure transactions that align the, the loan with the business needs and the business capabilities. Um, and then you observe management behaviors and you could see there could be 10 you know, paper distributors all doing the same job in, in a marketplace. Two were outstanding, two were failing, and six were kind of okay in the middle. And so I spent my time and energy studying the two that were outstanding and, and understanding what made them different and better and why they were succeeding versus their competitors who weren't succeeding as well or not at all. Um, and it was a great education. Uh, I guess for close to five years, I chaired a loan committee and um, you know, literally heard thousands of loan requests from my loan officers. Uh, and those stories always are, are enlightening. They provide context, but they also educate you about you know, kind of mistakes people make, successes they have, and things that you can learn from that that help you make better judgments. So then let's talk about pharmacy services. You know, which is your first baby. How yes, did that come did. about? Uh, that was really, that was because I became a banker. So uh, when I first became a banker, my, my oldest daughter, Wendy, was born just months before I became a banker. And, um, and my wife and I were talking about the job and the opportunity. And I kind of felt like you could make a nice living being a banker. I didn't really understand early on how lucrative it would be. Uh, but I felt like I needed to start making some investments to put money away for college. So uh, my, I have a brother-in-law who was a pharmacist. I found about an opportunity to open up a pharmacy in Baltimore City. And um, I went to him and said, you want to go into business with me? I'm going to do this deal. And, but I don't know anything about pharmacy. I know about retail merchandising and store operations. So he said, yeah. So we opened up a single drugstore in Baltimore City uh, on December 5th of 1980. Um, and I left the company 19 years later. Uh, and it was doing uh, $1.1 billion and making about $120 million in, in operating income. That's absolutely incredible. Now, in this case, you know, the company, you guys ended up selling the business. Is that right? Yeah, we, we, sold, we sold it in 1996 to a New York Stock Exchange company in lieu of a public offering. Um, and, then, um, and then took that platform that the public company gave me and took uh, what was then $200 million and turned it into a billion one over the next uh, three and a half, four years. It was very okay. fast. Now, now, in this case for you, I mean, being able to go through a transaction like that, I think that it probably gave you access to full visibility into how the financing cycles or the cycles, life cycles too of a company, you know, really, really work from ideation to scaling to, uh, to obviously reaching the finish line, you know, getting, getting it acquired. So how was that for you, having that visibility? Uh, well, it was great because, um, you know, having been a banker uh, prior to, to uh, taking on neighbor care full time, I, for many years, I was a part time CEO during the, frankly, from 81 to 91 when I was running uh, and working at the bank. Uh, you know, I was I was a part time CEO. But all along the way, it allowed me to understand the matching of the assets to liability, short term to long term making sure that the liquidity was properly planned um, and that we looked at various ratios uh, that were consistent with our business model that would allow us to uh, continue to borrow funds for expansion in a way that was safe, didn't bet the farm, but also took advantage of big opportunities. 
And uh, we were fortunate because, frankly, back in the 80s, the uh, commercial lending laws and the commercial lending attitude were different than they are today. So today, there's a lot of private equity and a lot of venture capital that goes to early stages. Back then, I could still, you know, basically talk people into lending me money. And so I didn't have to give up any equity. Now, in your case, I mean, the outcome was pretty, pretty nice for you guys. I mean, it was a $55 million exit, you know, on your end. So I'm sure that you were able to more than cover the school for, for your daughters, eh? for Wendy <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. and others. That, huh? Yes, it, it, all, it all worked out fine. But it also, it also just inspired me to want to do more uh, and to want to do it again and to find ways to create businesses that uh, help people, but also had very strong returns. So uh, uh, in, in the healthcare field, I've made any number of investments that have been uh, very successful, including one called VisiQ. Um, and, um, and then uh, we started another company called Remedy Senior Care, which uh, today is about a $500 million pharmacy company. So, so uh, not, not quite finished with pharmacy yet. And, um, and really um, went, into, went into our current business uh, really kind of as a lark. It wasn't something that I had planned, nor, nor did I really have any interest in until my oldest daughter, Wendy, who at the time was a TV producer, kind of talked me into it. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, one of the things that you did is going to the other side of the table as a private equity investor. Why did you do that? One, I thought that um, given the fact that I built a couple of businesses and understood financing and understood operations and, and the intersection of both, that it would be a place where I could apply my skills, I could help others, I could mentor people, and I could make a lot of money doing it, which is always a good thing. Uh, it's never should be your first thing, but if you're going to work hard, why not do it where you can make more money than less? And so um, I knew the private equity world well, and um, and some friends of mine came to me and said, uh, you know, we're going to take our family office and convert it into an institutional investment firm. We'd like you to come and join us. And, and you know how to do institutional investing and you've run a bank. So you, you understand portfolio management. We don't have those skills, but we're very good investors and they, and they were and are. And so we, we partnered up and, uh, we raised our first fund in 1999. And then, uh, through the, through the next, uh, 10 years, we, we raised seven more. Now, for the private equity firm, I mean, you guys ended up going from like zero to like four billion uh, in assets under management, which is fantastic. But one of the things there that uh, that I like to ask you is, having been on both sides of the table now, you know, when you're on the investment, you know, seat, you know, what were some of the patterns that you were seeing on those companies that had the magical ingredients versus those that didn't? People uh, and, and a willingness to uh, really challenged the competency and the and the results of the people in a way that was aligned with the needs of the business. And so instead of favoring people because they were loyal, they favored people because they were competent and they would achieve their goals in prescribed timeframes and would move on to the next goal and so forth. And, you know, one of the challenges you see in high growth companies is the people that started you and, and, and maybe got you started up, may not be the people to get you to the next phase of growth or the phase after that. But quite often, those people that were there with you early, you have some affinity to. And so you've got to be able to separate your emotional ties from your intellectual honest assessment of, is this person going to be able to perform these duties adequately to meet the needs of the business? going forward. You, you can't live the, manage the business out of the rearview mirror. You've got to be looking through the windshield all the time. And so you have to make hard decisions. And, um, you know, one of the things I've seen is great executives, a guy I work with named Rick Rudman, I thought was one of the best CEOs 
because he was not afraid to to make a change um, if someone wasn't getting to the to the promised land, if you will, or if they were kind of running out of steam. They were somewhat of a one trick pony. And uh, as the business evolved, they needed a multidimensional approach and and they didn't have it. And and Rick was always kind about it, but he was to- he wasn't tolerant of non-performance. And um, we took that company public uh, with him and it was a huge success. And he's now building a new company that I'm sure is going to be a huge success uh, because he just understands that you, you've got to you've got to put the right people in the right seats. Uh, but those seats change and you've got to stay ahead of that and make sure that you're you're mentoring them and coaching them, but also holding them accountable. And if you do that well, first of all, you'll build a high performing team. And secondly, your team will just, uh, you know, they'll out hustle the competitors because they're just working smarter, not harder. So in this case, you know, for the private equity firm, you guys ended up getting, you know, six times the return on the amount invested. So uh, pretty good. You know, it sounds like you were ready to go to the Caribbean and, uh, you know, have a, have a nice, you know, retirement there. But, <laughs> uh, you know, one thing led to the next and you receive a phone call from your daughter. So what happened there? Well, it was uh, I, I retired at uh, kind of the end of uh, 12 and uh, was down in Florida, my home there and kind of playing golf and managing some real estate. And I got this call and she said, Dad, I want you to go into business with me. And I said, we call her WB. I said, WB, what do you mean to do? She goes, I want to go into the medical cannabis business. I said, what are you out of your mind? Like, why would I want to do that? You know, I'm in the pharmaceutical business. And, uh, and she goes, well, I think it's going to be a big opportunity. I think there's a, a lot of things we can do to make a difference in people's lives. You understand pharmaceuticals. You understand how to build businesses. I understand branding and marketing. And I think the two of us could do a, a great job together. And um, after that, uh, that October of 13 call, it took until about March of 14 that I started to really take it seriously. Uh, and that occurred when I called a neuroscientist that I knew that I was on a board with. And I said, have lunch with me and I want to chat. He did. Uh, I asked him about cannabis. He said, it's a miracle plant. And the only reason it's not in wide use is because the federal government has falsely vilified its qualities and hasn't allowed proper research. Uh, And that was really that, that from that day on, I started spending my time talking to doctors and scientists and horticulturalists to figure out what to do, ultimately put together a team of five people. We did research around the world for about 12 months, and then we built our business plan. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction. You need to grow. You need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They are also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech. 
tech slash deal makers. And that is again, go.tech forward slash deal makers. So go get your own domain. And how was it like, you know, going into business with your daughter? It was uh, exciting. It was um, enlightening. It was frustrating. Uh, it was all the things you would expect uh, between a father and a daughter. We have a very close family. So I'm very close with my three grown children and have been their whole lives and they're close with me. So part of the the, the, the challenge is, you know, when you have to tell one of your children, because all three of them are in the business now, that when uh, Rebecca, our middle daughter, and David, our son, have joined the business over the years and key positions. and uh, But when you have to tell them that you're not pleased with their performance, it's always a little bit tricky. And uh, as good as they are and as competent as they are, they're still, uh, based on my experience, pretty young, right? I'm a lot older than them and have done a lot more. And, and now I'm asking them to step up into new roles and do things they've never done before. And they're very bright and they, they will work, you know, endlessly, but making them work smarter and understanding nuance and developing wisdom areas is a place that, you know, I've tried to spend a lot of time with them and they've rewarded me with just great performance. But, you know, it, it is it is challenging. But candidly, I believe that if you have my last name, you have to work smarter than harder than anybody else if you want to be part of the organization, because you're a reflection of me and B, you got the opportunity because of nepotism. You know, let's, let's be honest. And uh, that doesn't mean you're not worthy of it. Doesn't mean you can't do the job. But I believe you have to be held to a higher standard. And and I'm proud to say that all three of my fully grown children who are part of this business are among the top performers in the company. And I think if you interviewed anybody off the street, and you said, do you work at Curio Wellness? And you asked about one of the, the three of them, they'd say, they're just great. You know, they just, they do their jobs really, really well. And they're very committed to the mission and the success of the company. And, you know, there is this book, it's called The Founder's Dilemma. It's a great book. And on that book, the author talks about, you know, the trickiness of going into business with family members, just because, you know, sometimes you don't want to hurt, you know, their feelings. And in the end, you know, by not giving that tough love or, or really being authentic or, or transparent with what's going on, you know, to avoid hurting, you know, their feelings, then, you know, in the end, you know, that could be catastrophic too. So, I mean, any, anything that you've learned maybe in the communication side of things, you know, with your children, you know, when being in business with them? Well, I think, yes, very much so. First of all, I think you have to be very honest with them about what you like and what you don't like, and you have to give them the underpinning reason why what they have done or haven't done is not in the business's interest or in their self-interest. Um, and you have to then kind of help them understand where they need to go and why, and and then how to get there. Sometimes you need to give them some additional resources to train them or develop them, and sometimes that's better off not being you. Um, but honesty is always the best policy. And it's not to be delivered kind of in a uh, nuanced manner that you may have to interpret. It should be very direct, very clear, but very polite. And so, you know, when my anybody who works with me knows I, I'm very direct, but I'm very polite. And so I can tell you, you've done a terrible job, but I will do it with a smile and in, in a very courteous manner. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I had a boss once said to me, you know, like if if I, if uh, you don't do your job, it affects me and I don't want to get fired. So go do your job. Right. And so I, that's kind of what I say to them. It's like, if I got to do your job, I don't need you. So go do your job. And oh. um, and one of the things that we do, I think, particularly well, is we set very specific objectives and metrics uh, for what that means to do your job for pretty much everyone in the organization. 
So for the people that are listening, that would love to get an understanding on on what Courier Wellness you know, is all about. What's the business model? How are you guys making money? We are a science-based uh, producer of innovative products derived from cannabis. Uh, that's different than being a cannabis company because our focus isn't cannabis. Our focus is health and wellness and using all of the magical qualities of the of the cannabis plant uh, in a in a more traditional, scientifically derived manner. So we have a large scientific board. We have a very significant product innovation team with pharmacologists, uh, computational chemists, analytical chemists, uh, other other biologists, people that understand chemistry and the plant and um, and we work hard to determine how the cannabinoids in the plant can be isolated, uh, applied to a particular uh, health indication or need, um, and then measured for effectiveness. So uh, all of our products are first scientifically derived, then clinically tested. Um, and I'm proud to say right now we have four patents pending. One's about to get issued and three others, but we've really made some breakthroughs that are making the use of the cannabinoids more effective. For example, we have a uh, IBD or IBS pill, you know, inter- irritable bowel, uh, that um, is a pulse release uh, of CBG, CBD, CBNs, THC, and some other other plant-based materials. Um, and it's very, very effective. And it's competing now with biologics, you know, which are very expensive and which have many other side effects. Uh, the, the nice part about cannabis is it plays very well in the physiological sandbox. It doesn't have negative effects on kidneys or liver or lungs or hearts or really anything that, that I've been able to see or, our, or, our, or our, our science has discovered. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it it's, may take a much longer period of time. But I can tell you that the, it does have a very powerful ability to affect inflammation and pain um, and, and also, to some extent, uh, reduce anxiety. So we've seen some very, very fine results uh, with sleep products, uh, with topical pain products for joint pain and arthritis, uh, for GI products. So, so we're building a pretty large po- portfolio of products. Uh, right now, I think we have about 140 different uh, individual SKUs in our portfolio, by far the largest in Maryland. Uh, but it's all about wellness. And, and we're very true to that. And even as we move into adult use, uh, we want to be known as the wellness company that you can just get anywhere because you don't need a card now. Now, now, obviously, for this operation, you guys have had to raise some money. So how much capital have you guys raised for this? Uh, I've raised uh, $52 million in common equity to date in two raises, original a $30 million one, another $22. Uh, and almost all of that money has gone to physical assets. We haven't burned very much cash at all. In fact, we've been profitable since October of 2018. So once we once we got through startup, we opened up in, in December of 17, and approximately 10 months later, we were profitable. We've been profitable ever since. Uh, we're actually about to, um, or we actually have launched a $10 million preferred round um, to fund our expansion into Missouri. We were the first company that I'm aware of in the United States that actually got uh, traditional bank financing for mortgages. So we were able to get a $26 million mortgage for our expanded manufacturing and cultivation facility in Maryland in 2021, early 21. And then uh, CFG Bank, who is a wonderful bank, has given us uh, uh, the same type of uh, financing for our move into Missouri. So we have a we have a hundred sixty-five thousand square foot cultivation facility in Maryland and a fifty-five thousand square foot manufacturing center. 
which is GMP certified, meaning that it meets all the FDA requirements for, for uh, food or drug manufacturing. We're building a um, 130,000 square foot facility of equal quality and uh, certification and competency in Missouri, which will open up in September. So we're very fortunate. We're the only company I would know of that is actually in Maryland and Missouri at the conversion to adult use. Um, and we also have uh, two uh, dispensaries here in Maryland, both very high volume, uh, one up in the northeast corner near the Delaware border and one not far from our offices here in Towson, Maryland. Uh, both do both do very well and are in the top 20 dispensaries in the state. Um, and fundamentally, we have always built our, our businesses on scale. So my, my playbook has been the same for all of my businesses. Envision a competitive advantage, uh, either through product or service or both. Uh, build a economic model that you think you can produce that marries to an operational model. Validate uh, all of the underpinnings of that prior to building it in terms of as, as much as and best as you can. Obviously, demand is one of those things that you, you have to estimate. Build the model, fund it, and build it, which we did. Um, and then as you apply scale to it, uh, uh, observe the metrics that you achieve versus the metrics you forecasted. And once you get that to a very predictable model, then you stamp it out quickly uh, wherever you wherever you want to. So, you know, while others in the cannabis industry were buying licenses left and right and trying to figure out, you know, kind of how to get up and running, we spent all of our time in one market really learning how to be very good operators in this business, how to create new products that are innovative, how to get operating leverage out of incremental revenues, um, how to bring lean management systems and tools to the whole cannabis uh, industry and make it much more like a traditional manufacturing company. So if you came, came to see our facilities here or the new ones in Missouri, you would look like you, you think you're in a Johnson & Johnson manufacturing lab. They look exactly the same, uh, very clean and, and um, very hygienic and GMP certified and uh, really ready for what comes next when the FDA uh, takes over uh, regulation of cannabis, which we believe and have since the beginning, they ultimately will. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Michael, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Courier Wellness is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, it looks like we have the number one wellness brand in the country. It's respected for its safe safety, its its effectiveness, and its reliability and from dose to dose. So it, it whatever it tells you it's going to help you improve, it does improve. Uh, people trust it, um, and uh, we're able to manufacture it regionally and distribute it and not have to build plants in every single state. <laughs> that's, that's a long way off. So that's really a dream. So until then, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, uh, to build out manufacturing capability, uh, increase our retailing capability, uh, but really focus on uh, distinguishing ourselves as a leading brand um, in, the, in the manufactured products that are derived from cannabis. And now, you know, as we're thinking about the future, to talk to us about state versus federal when it comes to all this stuff that is happening around cannabis right now. Well, you know, there's a real there's a real conundrum. You have 42 states now that have legalized cannabis, uh, 22 of which have given it adult use designation. Um, so there's only eight states that have no no cannabis at all. Yet the federal government continues to kind of fight the war on drugs. It's like they're fighting yesterday's war. Uh Cannabis should have never been a scheduled drug. And interestingly, even though today, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the schedules, but I am because I'm in the pharmacy business. Schedule one is basically a, 
toxic compound that has no socially redeeming value or medical value, right? Well, we've now proven that that not only does cannabis have medicinal value, but there's a prescription drug, Epidiolex, uh, that the FDA has granted approval to uh, to be used as a legend drug. So you would think that given the fact that there's a legend drug uh, in the market from cannabis, that the, the Schedule One would have been lifted. But because of political reasons, it hasn't. Um, and so the fact that safe banking wasn't passed last year has really had a paling effect on the industry from an investor perspective and a, and a capital perspective. And I think now that Congress is waking up to that, uh, they have to they have to allow for cannabis to be treated like any other product in the United States. Uh, I ultimately believe that the federal government will deschedule and but it'll be a state's rights business like alcohol and tobacco. And so each state will decide how it wants to govern it, how it wants to regulate it, and will it will, whether it will allow it. Um, and I think uh, until then, you're going to continue to see this, you know, kind of walled off state by state approach where it doesn't really matter how big you are as a company. What matters is how big you are in each state. Right. So that's why we haven't gone out and done a whole bunch of licenses and have small operations in a whole bunch of state. You know, we're we're number one in Maryland and by a by a large percentage. And we feel like when we go to Missouri, we can immediately be, become a a very significant participant there because of the differentiation of our products. No, no one has products like we have. Um, in addition, on the flower side, we focused on a lot of plant science and discovery in a way that has resulted in a, a very high percentage of high THC, high terpene strains, uh, which are viewed as, we call them exclusive, but they're really a premium product. So in, in the flower side, we're looking for quality uh, over quantity, in the manufacturer products, we're looking for indication specific. Um, and because of the, the fact that we run factories with automated equipment and all the things that you would expect in a drug manufacturing plant, we can generate enormous quantities of, of product at a very high level of quality and consistency. Now, we've been talking about the future, so I just want to talk about the past real quick with a lens of reflection. If we were to go back in time, you know, I put you into it, this time machine, Michael. And I bring you back in time to maybe, you know, that moment that you were still in the supermarket. You know, you had made the decision that at some point, you know, you'll do something of your own. But let's say you're able to go back and be able to sit down with that younger Michael and give that younger Michael one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Oh, unquestioned would be make sure that the, the organization can keep up with your ideas and your chaos, right? Because when you're... When you're somebody who has developed an ability to ideation very rapidly and with a lot of fervor around new ideas and, and new, um, new concepts, you can drive people crazy because they can't keep up with you, right? And uh, I, I remember in neighbor care, we were growing at 100% a year organically, and I was killing everybody because they couldn't keep up with it. And, and the reason we were growing so quickly was because we had figured out a system that no one else had figured out for gaining large quantities of customers in the pharmacy business instead of getting them one at a time. And we also had a different model that was, that was uh, very cost effective and efficacious in terms of the delivery of pharmaceuticals. And so um, part, of, part of the challenge is always balancing the ability of the organization to perform against the opportunities that are right in front of it. Uh, but because of either constraints on capacity or uh, constraints on people or constraints on capital or other things, 
you, you've, you've got to kind of slow things down a little bit to make sure the organization can catch its breath and, and, and be with you. And like, for example, uh, we're going through an enormous inventory building process right now so that we can learn from what we observed in Missouri. We're building 25,000 cases of product for the launch of adult use here in Maryland on um, July 1st, in addition to our regular production. So, so in order to do that, we had to say to our, our product innovation folks, guys, we need you to kind of stand down and do work on things for about 120 days that don't require integration into the labs and into the manufacturing space because we need every single person we have focused on quality control and output. And, uh, and you know, it actually, it actually made life a little bit easier. They got a chance to catch up on some things and research and other things. Uh, and it made it uh, less intrusive to the manufacturing folks to just know that they were focused on pure production day in and day out. And they didn't have to do problem solving in the, in the lab or, or in some formulation activity or, or whatever it takes to create a new, a new product. Because it's, it's, there's a lot of work in product, in product innovation. I love it. So, Michael, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, they, can, they can email me at michael.bronfine at curawellness.com. That's probably the easiest way to, to reach me and uh, welcome their, their, their emails or their commentary. Uh, as I said, we are in the process of a, a preferred equity raise, and uh, I think our existing investors are going to take a, I know they are going to take a large share of that, but there will be a small amount available to some new investors. And, you know, we're always looking to expand our investor base. Although um, I would tell you that um, I don't think we're going to need to raise any more capital before either a public offering and exit at the end of 25 or early 26, because our cash flows are very significant. And now that we've got uh, adult use in both of our two states, um, uh, I think it's just going to accelerate. So you never know, but it doesn't look likely at this point. It looks like this will be the last capital we raise before we hopefully can get the, the feds to change their view and allow the New York Stock Exchange and the, and the U.S. capital markets to open up. That would, that would really be our preference. We're not, we're not interested in the Canadian markets. Amazing. Well, hey, Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to chatting again soon. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.